0: Welcome to Sister Scriptorians, where we are devoted to learning, likening, and lifting others one principle at a time. Episode 26, Delivered by the Power of God And just like that, summer comes to an end. Some of you began last week, I found out. We are beginning school this week, and I have mixed emotions. Like, I'm ready for them to go back because they're bored, and they don't know what to do with themselves, and they need structure, and they need to learn, and we all need to progress. But I just haven't quite jumped the shark of summer yet. (laughs) So... But we're going to get there, and we're going to start, and it's going to be amazing. It's going to be amazing, right? Positive thoughts. Well, I better get started with this week's podcast because it is a full podcast and what's neat is you're going to be able to get some information some history information that you're going to be able to wow your children with at the dinner table tonight or sometime this week and they're going to be like my mom is so smart or you're going to be able to wow people that you're talking to I am at least wowed by it but I I kind of tend to be a history geek so hopefully you'll enjoy it as well So Nephi desired to see, to hear, and to know the things which his father saw in his dream. And he desired to know the interpretation of, remember, the tree and the rod, the path and the large and spacious building. He desired to know all of it. And he was caught up away in the Spirit of the Lord, and he was shown everything Nephi's vision is captured in chapters 11 to 14 of 1st Nephi, and his vision is both glorious and horrific, and it seems to ebb and flow through both of these expressions. And remember, in episode 20, if you want to go back and listen to that episode, to Refamiliarize yourself with what he specifically saw. Remember, we covered how he saw the Mother of the Son of God, he saw the Savior's baptism, ministry, and also his crucifixion. And he learned that our Savior and Redeemer condescended to do all of this for us because of his love for Heavenly Father, of course, but most specifically, his love for us. The angel shows Nephi how the multitudes of the earth gathered together and he beheld that they were in a large and spacious building. And the angel introduced them as the world and the wisdom thereof. He explained that the house of Israel will gather together to fight against the twelve apostles of the Lamb. This large and spacious building was the pride of the world And though Nephi did witness that it would ultimately fall and its fall would be exceedingly great, this fall would not occur before it could do severe physical and spiritual damage among the children of men. So in this episode, we're going to focus on the effects of the large and spacious building and also the effects of the mist of darkness or the temptations of the devil upon the children of men. So we're going to see this pattern or this cycle of destruction and despair that the devil creates. And then we're going to get to see the power and the hope and the glory that the Lord delivers us with. The angel continues on and shows Nephi his posterity as well as his brethren's posterity. They have reached the promised land, And they had become a numerous people, even as many as the sands of the sea. But instead of seeing harmony, like Nephi probably hoped he would be able to see, he witnessed wars and rumors of wars and great slaughters with the sword. He saw a mist of darkness cover the land, and he saw lightnings and heard thunderings and earthquakes and all manner of tumultuous noises. He saw the earth and rocks rent, literally split and burst violently. Mountains tumbled to pieces, and the plains of the earth were broken up. Imagine! And the cities, the great cities that were numerous upon the land, were sunk into the ocean, burned with fire, or tumbled to the ground. Yet miraculously, when this vapor of darkness leaves, there are still multitudes that remain. Nephi witnessed then the heavens open and the Lamb of God descend out of the heavens. And he witnessed his posterity witness their Redeemer. And where there once was chaos and despair, the Savior created order once more through his love. He called 12 ministers to work amongst the people, baptizing and teaching them, reminding them of the things in which the Savior will teach them, and their garments will be made white in the Savior's blood. So Nephi got to witness the peace and the joy that would come as three generations from the Savior's visit to the Promised Land would pass away in righteousness. And also many of the fourth generation— However, the following generation he would witness would gather together in a battle. It is at this point in Nephi's dream that the angel shares with him the interpretation of the river, the mists of darkness, the large and spacious building, and the great and terrible gulf, which divides those who are on the path going towards the tree of life, and then those who are in the large and spacious building. The river was a fountain of filthy water and the depths are the depths of hell. The mist of darkness are the temptations of the devil, which have the ability to blind at the eyes and harden at the hearts of the children of men. And this mist and its temptations can confuse and disorient us, the traveler, and lead us into broad roads that we may perish and become lost. The large and spacious building is the vain imaginations and the pride of the children of men. And the great and terrible gulf was the word of justice of the eternal God. So upon knowing the interpretations of his father's dream, and then witnessing the Savior's coming, seeing his posterity bask in the blessings that righteousness brings, observing the slippage that would begin, and then the slippery slope that would lead quickly to his seed's demise, Nephi testified that his seed would be destroyed because of their pride and the temptations of the devil. He witnessed their destruction. He witnessed the triumph of his brethren's seed. He witnessed how his brethren's seed would then battle with one another and how they would spread across the land, but they would become a filthy people full of idleness and all manner of abominations. Chaos darkness, despair. Nephi is then shown the nations and kingdoms of the Gentiles, and many waters separated his brethren's seed from the Gentiles. The angel explains that the wrath of God is upon the seed of his brethren. Now it's at this time that Nephi is shown a man who was among the Gentiles, and that the Spirit of God came down and wrought upon him. And Nephi watched as this man went forth upon the many waters unto his brethren's seed in the promised land. And he saw the Spirit of God wrought upon other Gentiles, and they too went forth out of captivity upon the waters to the promised land. And soon the land of promise had multitudes of Gentiles upon it. And Nephi observed how the wrath of God was upon his brethren's seed. For they were smitten and scattered before the Gentiles. And it's this point in history that I always become uncomfortable. Especially living the benefits from the fruit of all which occurred hundreds of years before me. And it is at this point that I do rely upon the characteristics of God. That He is not a respecter of persons. That He is merciful, abundant in goodness, and slow to anger but that he cannot lie and that his course is one eternal round, but yet he is love and exercises all of these attributes and characteristics perfectly. But there was brutality and there was mistreatment. The Spirit of the Lord had withdrawn its protection from the remainder of Lehi's seed. They had denied him, they had treated his teachings as without worth, And they had rejected the prophets. A people who had once been given everything eternal and precious through a series of choices, now were left with nothing of it. And remember, the land in which they occupied and the land in which I walk today was a land with conditions. If ye keep my commandments, ye shall prosper in the land. But if ye keep not my commandments ye shall be cut off from my presence. This is the condition that has never been lifted and is the responsibility of each of us, especially those who occupy this promised land. It is up to us to solemnly honor these conditions. And so therefore Nephi witnessed that the spirit of the Lord was upon the Gentiles at this time. Because so, they prospered and were able to obtain the land for their inheritance. And something to take note of is that they were brought out of captivity. They humbled themselves before the Lord, and the Lord was with them, just like he was with Nephi's seed when they were abiding by his teachings and his covenants. Nephi then witnessed how the mother Gentiles gathered together upon the waters and the land and battled against the Gentiles who had been brought out of captivity. But he also saw that the power of God was with them and against all those who gathered together against them to battle. He delivered them by his power out of the hands of all other nations, and they prospered. So I remember reading this part of scripture when I was in the ninth grade and I was in early morning seminary in Brother Ploker's class and reading these scriptures for the first time, recognizing that the events of history that I had been taught since my early years of learning history were recorded and briefly captured in scripture. I recognized Christopher Columbus being the man who the Lord guided upon the waters. And I recognized the others that came as the pilgrims. And I finally saw the references to the Revolutionary War that created the country that I am a part of. In reference to Columbus, the scriptures describe that the Spirit of God came down and wrought upon him. The word wrought is the past tense of work. So the Spirit of God worked upon him. For eight years, Christopher Columbus searched for a sponsor. He had an idea. He wanted to be able to find a route to the Indies going west. He had received guidance he believed from the Lord, and he was looking for a way to carry through with it. And Columbus was raised in poverty, therefore receiving very little formal education. But yet he had tenacity to seek out the knowledge he desired and he studied. He studied astrology and geometry and arithmetic. He learned about drawing maps, about seamanship, cosmology, histories, and philosophies. And he said that through these writings— The hand of our Lord opened my mind to the possibility of sailing to the Indies and gave me the will to attempt the voyage. And boy, did he need that determination because his calculations were off. But who could blame him? No one had ever attempted to sail where he was sailing before. I think the only people that could probably blame him were his crew who were grossly misinformed and grossly ill-prepared with supplies and who grew increasingly contentious during their voyage over it. But backing up though, so let's back up. I'd like to point out that during those eight years of proposing his ideas to various countries like Portugal and Spain and England and France, the hand of the Lord was still at work. Though it did not spare him from rejection, humiliation, and mockery, the Lord was working upon him, and Columbus was acting upon it. Other seamen had tried sailing west on the Atlantic waters. They were leaving out of two particular ports, and I hope I say this one right, Azores or Bristol. Their efforts were always defeated by the west winds. And Columbus, having finally been commissioned, by Spain, was able to sail south to the Canary Islands, so like in a southwest direction, which once he was then on the Canary Islands, his plan was just to sail directly west. And by doing this, he was able to pick up on these northeast trade winds and receive momentum in his sails. His knowledge of the elements, the right commission from the right country and of course the direction of the spirit moved him along the course that he needed to go but on the waters things were not smooth his crew was stirring themselves up into a mutiny they had not seen land as soon as columbus had said that they would see it and their rations were decreasing and they feared about their ability to even be able to catch a wind back to be able to return back to their home In fact, they had given Columbus three days to find land, or they threatened him with death. On October 7th, 1492, remember, in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. While on October 7th of that year, Columbus altered his plan. (laughs) So, he has three ships, remember, with crews on each ship, of course. That are threatening mutiny he only has a couple of days and then they're throwing him overboard and he decides to alter his course at this time and why because of a large flock of birds he saw flying in a southwest direction he remembered through his studies that the portuguese had discovered the azores by following a flock of birds this decision of his proved to be a crucial decision without this course correction he may have passed the caribbean islands hit the gulf stream which he then would have been moved up to the shores of florida and up past georgia and the carolinas and though he may have seen pretty lands he would not have found gold and without gold there would have been no reason to return the voyage would have been not only unprofitable but a failure, because that trade route to the Indies had also not been found. But because Christopher Columbus followed a flock of birds, the rest is history. He didn't give up. He didn't doubt the enlightenment that he received. He didn't doubt that it was the work of the Holy Spirit. He didn't doubt his studies and the spirit that led him to pick up the trade winds that moved him past the Atlantic waters when others had failed. And despite the difficulties in gaining sponsorship, he continued to move on and he continued to try. And he contributed all to the Lord saying, without ceasing a moment, they insisted that I go on. The trade winds and the flock of birds were elements of the Creator in the details. Before I go on any further, let me tell you where I'm getting that story and information from. I love the book Seven Miracles That Saved America. It's by Chris Stewart and Ted Stewart. And you can find this story about Christopher Columbus and the next one that I'm going to share with you as well. And it's about the Revolutionary War. Also, another series that I like, if you would be more interested like in a historical fiction where it's a a fictional story but yet very well documented as far as what the facts were. I really like the series Prelude to Glory by Ron Carter. So anyways, moving on. The Revolutionary War is amazing. It shows shifts in the tide of the war because of the elements. You might expect the lord to show up by raising a special caliber of leaders which I personally believe he did. And you might expect to see him in the principles and the spirits and the language of the people, which I believe the Declaration of Independence affirms. And you might even expect to see him in moments of brilliant military strategy, which I don't doubt he inspired. But to see him in the weather? Luckily, history has captured some really neat and inspiring stories of how the weather enabled the rebel army to stay a contender in the war, especially in critical moments when they could have been obliterated and their cause would have been brought to an abrupt halt before it even gained an opportunity to get momentum. Compared to the British troops, the rebel Continental Army was pathetic. No uniforms, no discipline, no training, no navy, no warships, a small number of cannons— not many horses, only fifteen to 18,000, and about half of them were not even fit for duty because of all of the camp illnesses that were debilitating. And those that could fight, some of them weren't even armed with guns. In contrast, the British troops, at this particular time that I'm talking about in history, they had about 32,000 men who were equipped and in full uniform they had warships they had hundreds of cannons on these warships and then hundreds of cannons on land and they were trained they were disciplined and they were assured of their purpose to put a stop to these rebels but this could not be said about the colonists they were still grappling with the vision and the meaning behind the declaration of independence and not everyone was a fan of it but luckily though They were led by George Washington, who in everything that I have read, captured the honor and respect even of those that disagreed with him. But he wasn't a perfect man, and he didn't always make the perfect decisions, and not every battle was won because he was a good man. For example, he knew at this point that New York was key, and many loyalists to the crown were in New York. It had a harbor for the British reinforcements and could easily serve as their base. That they could bring their navy there. And the Americans not having a navy, that would be a huge threat to them. And if they were able to do this, then the British would then be able to have the advantage of blocking American sea trade. But most importantly, New York would mean splitting up the colonies splitting them in two, the perfect divide-and-conquer plan. George Washington knew New York was key, but what he didn't know is if the British would land on Long Island or in New York. So he made the decision to split his army in two. And when the British did land on Long Island, incorrect intel came to him about the numbers that they possessed. It was significantly lower, and so therefore he wasn't even able to make a course correction at this time to send troops over. Also, the rebels were set up on a high ridge, and it could be accessed by four roads. But only three, for some reason, were heavily guarded. The fourth road, called the Jamaican Pass, was just guarded by five men. And this road would allow the British Army to get right to the heart of the Continental Army. So once the British got this intel, they hatched up a plan. At night, they were going to take 10,000 men and lead them north and intercept this Jamaican pass and get upon the rebels right before dawn to rest and then wait. Another general is going to attack the rebels at the front and on the right side, drawing the rebels out, and without their notice, the rebels would then find themselves surrounded as the sneak attack party would then move to the east. If the rebels retreated back into Fort Stirling, they then would be trapped, surrounded on all sides by the British, because their plan was then to bring up along the waters behind the fort the British warships. On August twenty-sixth, 1776, The British carried out this plan. They left campfires lit and tents set up so that the rebel lookouts would assume that the British were just going about their nightly business, preparing for rest. On August 27th in the morning, the battle begins like the Brits anticipated. And it was intense. Many of the Continental Army were taken prisoner, caught in the marsh as they tried to escape, drowned, or massacred. The British were so confident at this point that things were going in their favor, that they had the Continental Army, like this war was going to be done, that they decided to cease fighting and decided to just finish up their business the next day. So the American soldiers retreated back into Fort Sterling because they realized that they were surrounded by 20,000 British soldiers with the East River behind them. And while they retreated, the British began digging trenches to prepare for their victory the next day. So afternoon of August 28, 1776, a storm rolled in. And that night the winds blew, and a northeast wind picked up, and it was strong. And it blew into the next day, and it prevented the British warships from being able To move up that river like they had planned. On August 29th, George Washington had decisions that he needed to make. Could he evacuate 9,000 men? And he decided it was worth a try. And everything that could carry a man across the river was gathered. And all along the while, the storm continued to blow. And because of the undisciplined nature of the troops and the chaos that word of retreat would create, they were told to silently prepare for a surprise attack. And then once they were all prepared, they began taking the troops in the back and taking them to the ferry and telling them that they were being traded out, reinforcements were coming to trade them. Cannon wheels were covered in rags and brought to the river as quietly as possible and the nor'easter continued to blow, making it impossible to row the boats and to get the Continental Army across the river. At about 11 that night, messages were sent to George Washington to abandon his plan. The boats couldn't take it. They couldn't traverse the waters. But then suddenly, the nor'easter winds ceased, and the gentle southwest wind began to blow allowing for a very quick retreat. And the complicated task of moving thousands of men in gear at night was happening. The sun began to rise, and yet not all of the army had made it across the river. But with the rising sun came a dense fog, thick, that settled just on the side of the Long Island side of the river. You couldn't see, and it muffled the sound And the rising sun wasn't burning it off. And so the retreat was able to continue, and they were now protected by the fog. And by mid-morning, the retreat was completed, bringing General Washington on the last boat. Just like the northeast trade winds allowed Columbus to sail the Atlantic waters just like a flock of birds delivered him out of the hands of desperate sailors who were ready to kill him, just like the nor'easter winds that protected the Continental Army from being demolished, and just like how a fog, a dense fog, delivered them out of the British hands to allow them to keep fighting for their independence. How is the Lord showing up for you? There are some who've said on a hard day, that a particular sunset was made just for them, well, I believe them. There are some who say that the heat of the sun is like a warm embrace from their heavenly Father. I believe that's true. There are those who feel they have heard the whisperings of the Spirit in a gentle wind. I don't doubt. He who created all things is surely capable of that. And just like Nephi's vision as it ebbed and flowed through grandeur and horrific, Our life is going to be like that too, and when you're in a moment of horrific, just wait a little longer for the hand of the Lord to be able to deliver you. Our moments of trial are our preparation. It took Christopher Columbus eight years of preparation until he was given the go. The Continental Army fought, was it almost eight years, seven, eight years, until independence was won. And they had to suffer the dreadful weather that the British had to suffer with deplorable conditions. But it made them strong. It made them solidified in purpose and determined. And eventually, the hand of the Lord did ultimately deliver them. I guess what I'm trying to point out is, don't let the large and spacious building and the mist of darkness add more upon you than what is necessary. Learn from Nephi's dream that the destruction and despair that the devil creates can and will be answered by the power, hope, and glory that the Lord delivers us with. Don't despair. Look to Him. Sister Scriptorians, I challenge you this week to not take anything for granted. Contribute everything that comes your way that gives you strength and power, determination to move on as deliverance from the hand of the Lord. Look for Him, invite Him, and then thank Him for when He does come. Have a good day.